Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. Today on the pod, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what we've been thinking about in the world of romance. Today, we talk about the term jolie led. What does it mean? Who does it apply to? And what do we think about categorizing women? Spoiler, we're against it. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we'll be talking about the infamous 1972 film, Last Tango in Paris. Chris reveals a story from his past, I stop him from doing four hours of Brando impressions, and we establish that this is not on our list of top first date movies. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. My co-hosts prove that they have not been single in a very long time, as they reveal their beliefs that it would be very easy to find a hot stranger within the next hour. We come up with our own psychopath test that Naf immediately fails, and we try, once again, to make good happen. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. In this episode in particular, we discuss sexual violence and depictions of death by suicide in Last Tango in Paris. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. And this week, it was my turn to tell you what's been on my mind romantically. And in fact, I'm not sure this is so much of a romantic concept as it is one of attraction and beauty. But really, what's the difference? So let's (laughs) get into it. I've been thinking a lot this week about the term jolie led. Have you guys heard this term before? I have, but I don't know what it means. Yeah, I know Chris has because I accidentally told him I was going to do this on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, that counts though, right? Like, I, 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 I've heard it from when Rachel told me a few days ago. Knowledge is knowledge. It doesn't matter if it's new or old. But this term has really been bugging me. This is the kind of term that you read in like English books from the turn of the century, mm. the turn of the last century babies. <laughs> <laughs> When they're like, she wasn't beautiful, but she was a jolie led, you know, like using a French term in an English context. And so I came across it in this book I was reading. But I was thinking, what is the, like, what is this term really? Like, what do we mean? Mm -hmm. Because I've always thought of it, you know, it's not somebody who's beautiful, but who comes off as beautiful. Right. You know, this shorthand. But I've just gleaned that from context. So I was like, what is this? The the basic definition of jolie led is somebody who's not conventionally attractive in that their face is perfectly symmetrical, but it's somebody who has that attraction all the same. Mm-hmm. And so examples that I found just given on various blogs were Tilda Swinton, for example, Ooh. Charlotte Gainsbourg, Angelica Houston, Wallace Simpson, you know, these people who are very, who have this charisma and have this appeal and have like a a loveliness about them Mm -hmm. 
but it's the, but they don't have the symmetry of a face like, uh, say, Kirsten Dunst, you would know, be, that you'd say was cute. Would it be too simplistic to say that in really broad terms, Jolie Led is the direct antonym to conventionally attractive? Because, no, because well, I think that would be uh, unconventionally unattractive. <laughs> oh, no, no, but I Use your logic. But I, but I just mean... You say that unconventionally unattractive. But I just mean... But not Somebody who should be pretty, but is <laughs> That's the but opposite I, of visually led. I, I didn't mean in terms of, uh, like, the literal translations of each, but someone like Angelica Houston, I guess that's why I thought about this. I think she's... Absolutely stunning. Like, she's really just someone I, I I find so captivating, specifically, well, as an actress, but also their face. But that's why I was wondering if it's unconventionally attractive, because to me, the thing that makes Angelica Houston maybe jolie led is her nose. But her nose is the best part of... This is actually it's the thing a that makes her, huge thing. It's, it's like, distinctive, it's, right? It's her distinctive feature. Is it someone with no distinctive features is jolie, and someone with distinctive features, whatever that might be, is jolie led? But kind of everything about what we find attractive in people, I think, is culturally led to a certain degree, right? Did you do that pun on purpose? Like jolie led, culturally led? Yes. So smart. <laughs> <Isn't> that's so. <laughs> not a pun, it's a homonym. Thank you, Montessori School. <laughs> <laughs> This was the sentence where I first learned this term is in Nancy Mitford book. I think it's The Pursuit of Love, where a younger woman says, well, she's she's pretty, but she, she doesn't have that X factor. And an older woman says, well, in my day, one was either a beauty or a jolly led. There was no in between. <laughs> Maybe it's just a way of being polite to people who are not beautiful then. Oh, for some, we're not accepting that, Chris. No, yeah. <laughs> I hope that silence put cold into your bones. <laughs> That's not correct. <laughs> I think this is a very awkward uh, subject for me to be wading in on at any level. Yeah, it's on the I, spectrum, on the spectrum between actual beauty and jolie led. Would you give me a naff feature ranking, please? Yeah, and it's trap. Like, it's the Chris trap. We're gonna come up with a theme song. <laughs> honest no one's gonna be offended just say what you feel <laughs> 10 hours later <laughs> i um i uh, um <laughs> i honestly love you <laughs> so the the question is what does this really mean right. because blog there are a lot of bloggers out there who are just like all it means is that you just have to be self-confident in yourself ladies right and it's not you know it's not the idea of somebody who's charismatic without say conventional beauty mm-hmm. it's the idea of somebody who doesn't have conventional beauty right. and yet is attractive to a wide you know swath of the population right and I came up with a few... I was going to ask. Okay, I'm glad. Because I was. I wanted to know if we had some people in our mind. I want to hear... Not people, but just traits. Okay, okay. And yeah. qualities. And I want to hear what you guys would mm-hmm. add to this or take away from it. To me, it's the opposite of cuteness. Yes. A jolie led is not cute. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly the same as sex appeal. It's an aesthetic appreciation for somebody, again, who has traits that are not appreciated necessarily in conventional beauty standards. Mm-hmm. I think there's a certain androgyny. This to me is mm-hmm. where Jolie Led comes about is that it was before we had words for different places on the gender spectrum. Right. And so Tilda Swinton to me is the absolute epitome of this. When you're going, oh, it is this angularity. To me, I'm not sure about the androgyny thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think that could still be something 
apart and different. I'm worried that I'm going to be quite controversial here and say that I feel that they are, you know, if, if we're talking about people who are just generally, you know, considered, perceived to be attractive, then I think a lot of these jolly leads would be people who had some ugly features, but then along with, I mean, what, you know, I don't know what ugly is necessarily, but like alongside that have something which is conventionally very attractive so somebody with an asymmetric face and a big nose but who has a smoking body um or a really that's called something horrible that i'm not even going to say on the spot <laughs> from the early 2000s or thanks really, life i think i know what you mean a really sexy voice or great hair or just what, what if you have all of those things yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, if you have all of those things, then... <laughs> yeah, 10 out of 10. Yeah, so I think it's, it, I think it's, effectively, it's somebody who is non-conventionally attractive, but then with some or a number of very conventionally attractive attributes, including just pure charisma. So I don't think there's any set reason why somebody would uh, get this description but like you know you know it when you see it yeah <laughs> no you know I, I will say also that I think I wonder if this is linked to I've noticed this especially with famous men where we'll talk about oh they're not a they're not handsome but god they're so attractive and I feel like we give men and I'm really talking about kind of like cis men we give them the benefit of the doubt in a way we don't give to cis women so I'm thinking about someone even to go classic like Clark Gable mm. I, you know, I personally actually do not find Clark Gable to be very attractive, but obviously I'm in the minority here. But in many ways, if you were to break down his his physique or his, like, his physiognomy, I don't know if that's how you say that word. I, Nobody I is. I wasn't sure. Nobody knows. Keep it's it. Fine. I don't know why he's so, but, you know, he doesn't fit the standard of, you know, a certain shaped face, like the the jawbone, et cetera. But obviously millions of people wept in that fucking movie Gone with the Wind. But, you know, there definitely are people like that I've, I've... I, I wish I could think of kind of other male actors who fall into that category. But for women, we don't really have that as much or we have it a bit more recently. Well, I, I think with men, we give a lot of power to charisma. So I'm thinking about Serge Gainsbourg. I'm yeah. thinking about Leonard yeah. Cohen. Yeah. And his <laughs> Serge Gainsbourg was more like an ugly lad, though. <laughs> oh, Chris, Charlie. that pun comes to you, the courtesy <laughs> of Christopher Newens. So it makes me think of Chelsea Hotel, the song by Leonard Cohen, yeah. where he's singing about what's supposed to be a sexual encounter with Janis Joplin. Mm -hmm. And she says to him in the song at one point, we're ugly, but we have the music. And it's like, I think mm. that Leonard Cohen would have an easier time getting laid than Janis Joplin, right. even though I think that she's actually a pretty good example of a jolie led, somebody with huge charisma that you just couldn't take your eyes off, off of, but who's maybe not conventionally attractive. Can I ask also, when you're kind of doing research into jolie led as a definition, as a category, does personality play a role in it? Because I also, I ask that because I think also with men historically, a man who's mean can be a cad, right? Can be charismatic, can be a character. A woman who is not nice or sweet or whatever we've decided are the characteristics that a good woman should have is just an, a bitch, right? Like, or is a nag. It's really- <laughs> Or is Brett Ashley from The Sun Also Rises. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There are always exceptions. There are women who can supersede those categories. 
But in general, we don't let women have kind of a wide range of characters. So I'm curious to know if personality trait also plays a role, apparently. Not definitionally. And oh, like, I mean, okay. when I was looking into the etymology of this, no. The way it comes up in early publications is just as, you know, somebody who's pretty ugly, like, <laughs> which is uh, which is a phrase that I thought I'd invented as a joke when I was five years old. And it turns out it existed in French. I think that the reason that I couldn't stop thinking about it this week, though, is that it's, it falls partially into this idea of categorizing women. To me, this does definitely feel like a phrase that a woman invented to give almost like respect to mm -hmm. a woman that she finds interesting to look at. I think that might be the the actual phrase. I don't think making a generalization, but they can't come after me because they're all dead. 18th century men were very much of the will I fuck her, will I not category. It's not, you know, like let me evaluate her beauty. Right. But to me, there's a kind of internalized misogyny about calling yeah. somebody a jolie laid because it's like, why are you thinking about those terms? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that the term doesn't exist for men, right? Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It absolutely doesn't. I mean, yeah. there's nothing even close well, that I can think of. And books I've only seen a re uh, in reference to women, yeah. For a man, I mean, the, I think the, the closest you would get is an actual description of his features. That's it. So a man gets specificity. Like Heathcliff, who has these very fascinatingly described traits. I wish I had a copy in front of me right now. I just imagine him with mutton chops. That's my... <laughs> my when, I, when I think Heathcliff, I think... Sort of dark brow, mutton chops, and that's it. <laughs> Scowl. The BBC... Slight rage to the eyebrows. Yep. Yep. The BBC did raise Chris from the ages of four to 14, so you have to take that into account. Right. It's true, I was found in the wild, actually. <laughs> he was found in the opposite of the wild. Oh, he was found in... wireless next to him. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised by Radio 4. I actually thought that I was Women's Hour for the first three years of my life. But you know, what you said also, Rachel, makes me think that the briefest definition for, for privilege is specificity. If when you, right, when, yeah, when you hard. are granted the, the honor, the privilege of, of really naming specific traits, distinctions, that's when you know you're privileged. That's really what it is. Like, right, you're not in a broad range, you're not in a broad category. And when you said men get specificity, it just... It all came together. That's what it is, right? It's it's the ability to be a universal category, but also you can go into specifics and then go back out again into being a universal. That's a wonderful thing. And now it's time for the love story. This week, Chris is going to tell us about Last Tango in Paris, the 1972 film by Bernardo Bertolucci. Chris, take it away. Yeah, that's right. It's fallen to me. <laughs> so, Lucky you. Before I start, though, I wanted to find out about what your relationship with Last Tango in Paris is. Have you seen it before this week? And, you know, if so, you know, what did you think of it? So I watched it for the first time in my early 20s, just as something that I thought was necessary to be kind of culturally literate. I absolutely adored this movie. Before I knew anything about the production, before I knew anything about the conditions surrounding it, I found it absolutely heartbreaking and beautiful. I couldn't look away. I think I had an actual Netflix DVD. Back when Netflix was uh, still considering 
being bought out by Blockbuster. Right, right. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> what about you, Nav? This was my second time watching this movie. The first time I watched with my friend Danielle, we were living together in Paris. And I believe it was, she proposed it. And we'd both heard about it. We watched it. We felt, I remember both of us, I think, fairly underwhelmed. And I didn't remember any of it when I rewatched it for, for this conversation, actually. So it was, it was, it was weird and kind of unsettling to rewatch it. So I have a story here. The first time that I watched Last Tango in Paris was in, I think, around 2011, when I was already living here in Paris. And I was working with this guy for the New York Times, which sounds very glamorous, but I was sort of his intern, but also working properly for the New York Times about three days a week. But we were freelance and we were working out of his apartment, which was just just this place in Passy on the top floor of a really cool building. And anyway, around that time, I watched Last Tango in Paris and literally the opening scene, which is Marlon Brando on the bridge, screaming up under the, the Passy Metro tracks and he's screaming up at this building. And I was like, wow, that's, that's the apartment that I work in. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea. <laughs> and then, lo, it unfolds that huge part of the film is set in this apartment, which I was going to literally every day at that stage. Was the guy you were working with, when did you talk to him about this? Obviously. Okay, and what was his, did he know, what was his reaction? So, there's a lot to go into here. His name was also Chris. He was... Perfect. A figment of my imagination. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Fight Club scenario. <laughs> Could be. He was, wait till I tell you about him. He was extremely good looking. Uh, yeah, there we go. He, he actually, he looked a bit like a matinee idol. He was, he was very tall, real lantern jaw. He was really, really smart. He had a voice a little bit like Batman. Question, where is Chris now? <laughs> so, some of us want to know. <laughs> Chris, let me know if you want me to tell them. <laughs> but anyway, but I mean, nevertheless, I used to uh, set up every day in Chris's apartment on this little table. He had this huge desk with big computers and I got this tiny table next to it uh, on a small chair surrounded by his dirty underwear. And anyway, I came in the day after I'd watched the movie and we obviously we have a lot of work to do to begin with. And we sort of sit there kind of like doing all of our typing. And then at a certain point I go, Chris, and he goes... <laughs> Yes, Chris. <laughs> I said, I watched um, Last Tango in Paris last night. And he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> That's so strange. This is genuinely how he used to talk. Because uh, I watched it last week, too. I was on a date with, uh, with my girlfriend. She'd come round for the first time. And we started watching Last Tango in Paris. And it's set here. <laughs> I had no idea. Also, side note, not a first date movie, guys. <laughs> that is very true. I didn't question that aspect. I can imagine, though, it could, you could think that it could be a first date movie because you've heard about it and you're like, ah, oh, this, this big erotic film. I guess. 
thing to put on. I think the uh, thing is that actually with some Bertolucci films, though, those that actually would work if you were like, first date movie, it's the dreamers. Yeah. We're all yeah. going to get like weirdly turned on and like yeah. questioning and like maybe we have sex and is this weird? I don't, it's not as weird as that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> for uh, good erotic movies to watch on your first date. Probably not first date. <laughs> this is third date territory. Tenth if you're English. <laughs> Marriage if you're English. <laughs> A decaded. <laughs> Should we spice things up? Anyway. <clears throat> With that in mind, I'm going to give my like really brief rundown of what happens in Last Tango in Paris. So we start with this middle-aged American man meets a 20-year-old woman in an apartment viewing. We all know the apartment. It's a lovely apartment. It's a bit down at heel at the edges, but you, uh, you get the idea. It says on the door, it's 120 square meters. Yeah. And honestly, that's my sexual fantasy right yeah, there. Exactly. That's all I need. Exactly. <laughs> These two people, they meet at this apartment viewing and... They share maybe one or two words with one another. They don't know who each other are. And then they just start just start having sex. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's probably pretty good passionate sex, although it's over very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the rest of what follows in the movie is basically the two of them, this American guy, Marlon Brando, and this, this young French woman, Maria Schneider, try to maintain their relationship but keep it entirely erotic so they don't want to say anything about that well specifically he doesn't want to them to say anything about what's going on outside of you know when whenever they come back to this apartment just to just just to shag meanwhile in the movie we as the audience we get to kind of peer into their lives we find out that she's called jean and she's making a film with her filmmaker boyfriend which is documenting every single detail of her life which i felt amateur literary theorist here but i felt that there was some kind of like counterpoint with the that boyfriend wanting to dramatize every detail of her life and Marlon Brando saying, no, we can't know anything about each other. We just want right. to be erotic. The boyfriend who's Jean-Pierre Léo, who's the star of the 400 Blows and the follow-ups to that. He's very much like new wave French cinema poster boy. And there's another Bertolucci film where he actually gives Jean-Luc Godard actual telephone number and actual address <laughs> as the villain in the film. Bertolucci is the original doxer. <laughs> he read it, read it, learned from Bertolucci. <laughs> As he would have said. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so it's a real, like, love letter, like, slash jerking off motion right, right. to the, the new wave. And I'm just like, yeah, great. Like, yeah. you know, that's fine. Finding out more about Marlon Brando's life, um, or Paul, as we should call him, he has recently lost his wife, who has probably killed herself although it's never really made clear and certainly at the beginning of the movie it's there's a strong possibility that he could have killed her i think as it goes on that becomes less and less likely but at the beginning 
which this is another interesting thing to discuss, I think, that there should be a lot of tension in those opening scenes as to whether he's going to kill Maria Schneider's character, but actually that's just not used mm. at all. We follow their lives, as I say, and we're following the erotic relationship as well, kind of interspersed with that, which gets... I mean, it already starts pretty intense and passionate, but it gets like progressively more and more, you know, weird and intense including the famous scene, or the infamous scene, sorry, in which Paul actually only rapes Jean using butter as a lubricant. And that's a kind of like legendary infamous scene in cinema. He tries to, after coming to terms with the death of his wife, he tries to break things off with with Jean, but he finds that he can't really do it. He, he tries to break things off because... He's finding that no matter how much they try to maintain just this erotic tension in the relationship, their real lives just keep creeping into this situation, not necessarily in a kind of story sense, but in an emotional sense. So they can't keep the emotional reality of who they are outside of it. So because of that, and because he's sort of made peace with his wife, he tries to break things off with her but he can't do it. Effectively, he then decides that he he comes to her after trying to break it off and it's like, let's start again. Let's not have an erotic relationship. Let's let's try it as like a real relationship. Hi, I'm Paul. I run a, a kind of deadbeat hotel somewhere here in Paris. How about you? And she sort of ums and ahs a little bit about who am I. They go to a tango competition, get really drunk at the tango competition and... Eventually, she's like, nah, it's not working for me. I'm sorry. Um, And he's like, what do you mean it's not working for you? That's my Marlon Brando. Um, And and she's like, it's not working for me. And she tries to leave him. She's just like, I'm leaving. And then she runs through the streets of Paris. He pursues her. He pursues her back to her actual apartment, where, as has been established Earlier on in the film, as per Chekhov's rule, there has been a gun introduced, which is mm-hmm. a sort of old family heirloom. He comes into the apartment with her and he's like, what do you mean? You want to get together with me? And uh, <laughs> and she pulls out the gun. But um, not before he puts on her dead father's, like, Algerian, yeah. in quotes, war hero mm-hmm. outfit and, like, makes fun of it a little bit. I mean, there are a lot of details. I mean, it, like, I'm not saying... Folks, it's a movie, okay? So yes, scenes are occurring with other characters. We're not going to name everybody. I'm not saying that Paul doesn't have it coming. Jean then shoots him up close. He dies. And then in the last cut of the movie, we have her preparing her story for the police in which she is muttering to herself, he he was a stranger. He came in off the street. He followed me off the street. He said he was going to rape me. He was a stranger. He came on off the street. None of which is wrong. All every statement that she says is true. That's wow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Before we sort of start talking about this completely, it's worth mentioning to go back to the the scene with the the butter and the and the rape scene in which has become so famous. This was very controversial in the the actual filming of it because Maria Schneider was was never told about the fact that there was going to be a rape scene or indeed that there was going to be uh, this like very degrading thing about having butter smeared 
all over her. Although the rape scene was simulated, she felt incredibly embarrassed and were humiliated by what was happening. And so when she's crying in the scene, those tears are actually her authentic tears for from what happened. Yeah. So this has added a real, you know, what was already a controversial film has added another layer of, of controversy over it. And just to add to that as well, Marlon Brando at the time largely refused to do any sort of press for the movie. And so it was up to her to do the press and the way that she chose to do it. And I say chose, I I'm re- I use that term loosely. So she was 19, so young. Media training is not, was not what it is now. And so the way that she chose, again, big air quotes, to present herself was sexually liberated, kind of uh, for a, um, an American and English audience, this is what a French lady is. And so I think that also, unfortunately, uh, turned tables against her when I think it's, I believe it's in 2007 that she came out of, you know, relative obscurity by choice to talk about this. And I think that there were a lot of questions raised because it was like, well, that's not what you said before without any sort of consideration of the time, of how young she was, and also of how actresses were frankly used and disposed of. They still are, but especially in the 70s, please. You were lucky if you got two good roles. Do you guys know how much each uh, actor got respectively for their roles? No. I don't know. Marlon Brando got $3 million. Uh, Maria Schneider got $4,000. Shut up. 4000 Yeah. He was coming off of The Godfather. She'd never done anything. She'd come from a troubled family background, parents in and out of the picture, Mm -hmm. and uh, was very desperate for work that later she said she wished she hadn't taken because that was it was the role that defined her for the rest of her life even though she worked with other amazing directors Mm -hmm. like antonioni Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know and uh and so on it was a very traumatic experience in that scene in particular there's no way around sort of starting i think with this sort of like very heavy question then should we be watching this film and that's a very big question to right. ask. Obviously, we have watched it, so... You know, I have two two thoughts come to mind. One of them is, in hearing you give us kind of a rundown of the plot, I was surprised to hear you talk about the movie from Marlon Brando's perspective, as if he's kind of the, the agent of change within this. But not because I thought she was the agent of change, but just because I hadn't, I hadn't really consciously thought until you started summarizing... In fact, I didn't really feel like I had one point of view for the movie, right? Like, I, I never felt like I was to- wholly in her POV versus his POV. Things just seemed to happen, which in some pla- some ways was a great strength of the movie, and in other ways made me feel really lost and bewildered. And then in terms of whether or not we should watch it or not, this might be controversial. I think one of the strengths of this movie is the casting. A- and I say this from what I have read and heard from Maria Schneider, this was fucking awful. And watching that scene today was a nightmare. For those who haven't watched it, will not watch it, she is sobbing. She's absolutely fucking sobbing. And Marlon Brando is just methodically going about whatever his role is in that scene. It's it's really horrendous to watch. And also, I think they're both incredibly cast, both for their roles and for how they interact with each other, because they never quite get to comfort. They achieve a sort of uneasy truce. And I think the movie does a really... The director does a really great job of capturing that uneasiness and that playfulness and then that sudden violence when it erupts. So I don't know. I think if you're interested in cinema, it's an important movie to watch, especially in in terms of American cinema, 
where it tried to go in the 70s and where it quickly reverted back to by the late 90s and where it stayed pretty solidly since then. No sex. We talk about it. We have passionate kisses. And the American cinema doesn't acknowledge that sex happens. So I think it's an interesting movie for many reasons. I think it's a great movie in some ways. In other ways, I think there are lots of problems with it. It's a movie that I also understand if someone said, I wouldn't want to watch it. I don't think you're going to be bereft of something super important, except if you're a film historian, in which case I do think Last Tango is an important movie to at least be familiarized with. Yeah, I'd make a really pedantic point here, which is that it's not American cinema. This is a Italian director working uh, with French and American co-financing. Like it's right. a, it's it's really international in terms of. No, that's true. I agree. Absolutely, well, not agree. You're absolutely correct. It was a huge hit in the U.S. though for yeah. a European movie that was major. Like that didn't happen. Oh yeah, for an art house film. I think for me, a lot of the criteria that I use in determining whether to watch a potentially problematic movie is who's around to profit off of it. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Schneider, Brando, and Bertolucci are all dead. Mm -hmm. And so the problem then becomes, because I I started watching it just thinking, you know, okay, this is going to be difficult. But I didn't quite realize how difficult it was going to be watching this scene where true trauma takes place. I think the big question is, does that override the rest of the film? You know, the point for me is that it's very difficult to justify. But the the fact is, is that like, no matter what, I have watched the movie. I, uh, you know, I'm interested in it. We're talking about it now. So... In some ways, any excuses that I find myself making, I feel that they're a little bit hot air slightly. The best thing I can say is that I like it's it, it's awful that it happened, but clearly we can't care enough about it not to carry on talking about it and right, doing this, right. you know, and watching it. And we, I mean, which is I think there's a whole sort of really deep discussion to have about that. As well. Well, it's a tricky conversation around. I would take it to a logical extreme about trauma being done to somebody. Talk about like a snuff film. You know, I've never seen one mm-hmm. or one that was most of them apparently are fake, but that's not something that you can unsee once you've seen it. Mm-hmm. And I think for me to rewatch this was really important, particularly because I had enjoyed it so much just like on a purely aesthetic and narrative level the first time I'd seen it so many years ago and uh, to come back and say okay well what do I think now and so I wanted to you know start up by asking like is is this an, an erotic movie like no this is not a love story uh, and this is not an erotic story this is a story almost about People trying to escape through the body and uh, finding himself, you know, ultimately unable to because bodies exist in society. I mean, this is a story about boundaries, which are not necessarily very erotic. They're necessary to sex. They're necessary to being, you know, a functioning human. But uh, they're not sexy in and of themselves. Um, I know. I know we just said we're going to move on from the butter scene. That scene contains for me the kernel of truth that I believe to be at the heart of this movie, which is when he makes her repeat as he's fucking her this strange manifesto about families, right? He's like, families limit us. They assassinate the ego. But she keeps saying freedom at some point, Mm. right? And I think that maybe the central conflict in this movie is family versus freedom, So as you were saying, Chris, in the summary, Paul dictates and Jeanne has to kind of follow along with, although she keeps breaking the rule. 
and he likes that because he indulges her, is that they will not talk about their past. They won't talk about names. But they do talk about their past, right? And he mentions, he tells her, and of course the end, not of course, but he does say like, maybe I wasn't telling you the truth, but I think I believe that it's the truth, that both of his parents were alcoholics. It was a very violent household. And when she talks about her childhood, she goes, it was wonderful. You know, like I had a great time. But we see her mom really briefly, and we also see kind of the the physical trappings of her dad, who was in the military, she mentions being in Algeria. There's this real sense of to be part of a family is to be part of some strange kind of social prison. And so in choosing between Paul and Tom, it does feel like I'm choosing a life of total fucking chaos versus a life that I'm, I know what it's going to be. and I already kind of hate it. She's <laughs> never going to choose Paul, though. That's never the choice. I, th- I think she might choose Paul at the end. It might not be the choice between the two of those men, but it is, I think, a choice between two types of life. And because of the time period that it's in, in some ways, the choice is a lot harder for her. As a woman, as a young woman, where will I fall, I guess? Like, what will I choose to do with myself, with my life? And yeah, I don't know. And in some ways, the two men kind of embody that, but... I don't think she actually has that choice. We see her so much in that cage of the elevator, absolutely unable to escape. Paul's not a real choice for her. She's an actually wealthy daughter of a decorated military man. Mm -hmm. Maybe not very upper class, but with a fairly upper class background and upbringing. But you know what I'll say about about her is that, and I don't see this to minimize her, the movie makes this choice what does she do besides being with these two men? That's why I think the choice, at least in terms of the movie, seems to be exemplified by these two people because we don't see her doing anything independently. And I'm not saying that that character doesn't have an independent life, but it feels like her life choices are really embodied in, are you going to choose this romantic partner or this romantic partner and the baggage that comes with either? And you hate both. It's very clear that you hate both, but the choice is these two things you fucking hate. No, oh, I think she could choose Tom or she could choose not Tom. She's never going to Well, wait, Tom. Paul has no baggage. He has so, tons of baggage. But like, well, he... Oh. Paul is literally a hotel <laughs> flop house full of baggage. I was really like, let's stop this podcast because Chris doesn't know how to watch movies, it turns out. Chris has no idea. Give me the wine. <laughs> when they're meeting in the Passy apartment... Effectively, because they, you know, we know all about Paul's baggage, right. but like she's just meeting this guy and she's allowed to map whatever she wants onto him. And it is true that, you know, he's not giving the best impression. <laughs> but, uh, but you're saying this, but at the same time, you're, you've already said, we don't know at the beginning if he's murdered his wife or not. We don't know enough at that point mm-hmm. no, either to know what his baggage is. But what I'm saying is, obviously, he's got lo- loads of baggage. He is all baggage. Yeah, it is clear that it's there. But when she's meeting him, she's allowed to map onto him a lot of what she wants. He can be this like principle of freedom because she doesn't know anything about him. He's, he's got an apartment. It's quite big. It's impassive. I mean, she can think that this guy is whoever she wants to to think he is, no matter, you know, and his issues and his baggage that he seems to have could come from anywhere. But the moment that she decides to leave him is when he's like, yeah, I'm just this, you know, I, 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 I could have been a contender. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
instead of what <laughs> instead of what I am, which is just this bum who's oh, yeah, know. and he's wearing the t-shirt from the streetcar named Desire. Yeah. They're the, referencing the Brando text so much. What I mean is the point is is that she decides to leave him the moment that he has an actual life, the moment that he confirms that his baggage comes from a specific place. Absolutely. Nobody tells her before. Like that whole monologue where, where the camera's on him, just like his face and kind of his shoulders. I, I, and it talks so, about his parents being alcoholics, but his mother gave him a love of nature. Do we believe it? I watched this monologue this morning. I was lying on my sofa. Yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, In a white undershirt. <laughs> with, the, uh, with the computer up in front of me. And it was like him and I were uh, on different pillows to one another. <laughs> I felt... I had the full experience at that moment yeah. of Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah. It's in my mind talking crap. I thought that was, a, I, I hated that monologue. I thought it was just indulgent and sort of like a bit pretentious. Do you think that she's even there when he gives that monologue? Because later on, when he mentions going to the countryside, she goes, you like nature? And that's such a big part of the movie that actually, and because when we get that monologue, we only see him. If, I, I could be wrong, but we never get a reaction shot from her. It's all on him. I think she tuned off a little bit like I did. You know, he's there. <laughs> you're there. You're just looking into someone's eyes. You're yeah. in, and he's there, kind of going, "Yeah." And I had this dog. And the dog used to well, used to jump over the, the thing, and then the dog used to sink down below the grass. Didn't <laughs> And then it just jump up above the grass. If you think I'm I'm editing four hours of you doing a Brando, <laughs> I am not. I will put out an entire podcast that's just you doing Brando and you deal with the consequences of that. To address Naf's point, I, I could see how the actual cinematography would indicate that, but I don't think that there's anything else in the actual film that would you know, lead us to believe that. Oh, so I don't I, believe me either, but I... <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm not saying believe you. So, I'm saying believe that no, take. No, but I'm just saying I will sometimes just ask questions because I'm like, this is really smart. <laughs> hey. It is, though. But I, I agree with both of you. <laughs> I think she's there. <laughs> I think she's there. I think she may be tuning out the way that uh, Chris is saying, and I think that she may not be believing him the way that I'm saying. But I also want to say that I think... There's an assumption in the way that we're talking about this, that this is from an objective, omniscient perspective. That's such a good and point. it's not. That's such a good point. So many yeah. of the critiques of this film say, well, we never get, you know, inside Jean's perspective. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to be from Jean's perspective. Mm -hmm. If anything, it's meant to be slightly from Paul's. It's, I think, the perspective in the film that actually prevents it from being a truly great film. But I do think that question of perspective is really interesting, especially who's listening and who can listen. Because to go back to that scene where she tells her mother, so uh, Jeanne is in the, in the elevator going down, and she decides to tell her mother that she's definitely going to get married in a week right as she closes the elevator door. And then her mother keeps running down the stairs trying to be like, wait, what? What are you doing? And so uh, maybe one of the hat tricks of the movie is that will she, won't she marry her Tom, like this bourgeois filmmaker, is the is is the seeming conflict posed to us. But actually, it's not about that. That's nothing, right? Like when, because uh, we were juxtaposing kind of Paul and Tom, Paul tells her at some point, it sounds corny, it sounds like a cliche, but basically you only figure out who you are when you face death, when you accept death. And Tom tells her, I can never bear anything ending. So as soon as we finish this, we have to keep filming. We can never stop filming, which feels in some ways very, very contemporary. 
it, it's not real unless we film it. It's not real unless it's recorded. And Paul seems to be trying to tell her, and I and I have really very little sympathy for Paul, so I'm not trying to say, like, he's he's actually the hero of this movie. I mean, doesn't he actually say, until you crawl up death's ass? There we go. It's trying to gross you out. It's trying to get you down to the absolute most disgusting aspects of the human body that are in the end just the body and he's trying to go okay this happened and you know my wife was there did i ever know my wife at all and she had this 35 cent razor you know and she was able to end it and i didn't know her and there's this baggage and i'm trying to find meaning in these things Mm -hmm. but there's the body and that for me is the moment where it becomes very clear that this was a suicide because Mm -hmm. he's just grasping at straws trying Mm -hmm. to figure out why this happened and who she was. And I really think it's showing his blind spots in terms of not understanding the ways that he was and wasn't present in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Take a step back and you go, this is an actor doing just this absolute everything in a film where he's improvising sometimes very badly, where sometimes Mm -hmm. you can see him searching for the cue cards, where, you know, he's giving really varied levels of performance. Mm -hmm. And he's giving everything in front of a purported dead body that's actually a living actress. This object, did this mean something? This object, you know, you have have a priest's dog collar, you know, and he's just assuming that, you know, okay, she fucked the priest, you know, this this is what this must mean. And in the apartment, it's simple. He won't let it be anything but simple. Mm-hmm. He's going, it, it's it's bodies, and bodies are disgusting. Mm-hmm. And if you can be there with me, that's all I need right now is just this utter, like, base humanity. At the point where he's had that monologue with the the body of his wife, and then he's going, I'm Paul, I'm 45 years old, I'm American, you know, I'm you know, blah, blah, blah. He wants to reintegrate into society. He wants to go beyond the realm of bodies. And she she has thought that she's fine in this realm of bodies and that she's be eventually become fine with it. Mm-hmm. But at the moment where he starts saying, and I own this flop house hotel and I'm kind of gross and I'm a failed this and that, my wife killed herself. That's the point where she's like, Oh no, I don't want this. Right. I yes, want it. I agree. Until the point where I actually have to know anything about you. So he's always wanted just the the base body and she's come around to that and they're reversing positions here. The tragedy of the film, you know, is that they can't be in the same mental and emotional space at the same time. Yeah. How important do you think Paris is to this movie? Like, how did it need to have been set in Paris or could it have been Last Tango in Boston? Uh, <laughs> or... Good Goodwill Tango. Yeah. <laughs> I would have loved to have watched that movie. <laughs> how do you like them big asses? <laughs> you know, I think, I think no, because in Paris, it feels like, especially for if you're going to have an American character... Paris feels like the place where you can reinvent yourself. Like, I kept thinking about Casablanca and Rick and Ilsa when they're in Paris not having names Mm. and having kind of this fantasy of, like, we're just... But that's, like, the happy version, right? Like, that's Mm. the two of them... And it still doesn't end up right. <laughs> exactly. But just those, like, whatever, like, the the week that they're together there, it's wonderful, right? And this feels like the funhouse mirror, the terrible side of, let's try to, like, not tell each other names. Let's just try to have Paris. But Paris... Ju- and, and I think that 
the the director uses Paris really well, just in terms of how I never really kind of consciously thought about how Paris is always kind of at weird levels. Often Marlon Brando is filmed above her on a bridge where the metro crossings are. There's really a sense of a city that's built vertically in a way that I think in American cities, that's not the case. In American cities, it's much more horizontal. It's a driving place in general. So I think just in terms of the geography of the city, it's used quite well and it's used really effectively. Well, I thought there was a lot, I mean, just watching it now about like the interiors versus the exteriors and how grotty all of the interiors are. Yeah. All of these interiors are just so sort of like there's always kind of like a bit of mold in the corner. There, the, there's the dead rat in the bed. There's the kind of like the the scraping on the wall where you know his wife is scraped in this uh, other guy's apartment. And the way that concierges are used are really interesting too. Like the black woman in the their apartment building who never leaves that space, who's always smoking, and who never knows anything about the the tenants. And as soon as someone leaves her, she's like. No, but come back. Let me talk to you again. It feels like weirdly like a troll under the bridge scenario. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I think it really works for me because Paris is, I mean, such a densely populated city. I think it is the most densely populated city in Europe. And surprisingly, it's like in top 10 in the world. Mm -hmm. And so you're always so close to these interiors, effectively. You're always walking around. And whenever you go around the streets of Paris... You look up and you don't know what's going on behind the the windows that you're walking past. Right. And there is this like beautiful facade. And then when you go inside, there's this oldness and coldness. But at the same time, that and this is where I would slightly turn around and say that I, there is a slight there is an eroticism to that privacy and to the to the ability to just be whoever you want to be when you're inside one of these spaces. In some ways, that the only reason why that apartment is a bearable space for us to watch is actually, for me at least, it was the moments where Marie Schneider and Marlon Brando are playful. The only points of levity are really between them when they're silly. Like when he says, my name is like, and he groans and grunts, and she does her... Yeah, and I mean, I'm not saying it's like the height of comedy, right? But, but I would say that, yeah, there's not a huge amount of humor in right. this. But those are like the moments where the two of them are trying to reach towards a childishness. And when Leo says, well, now we have to be adults, you know. And when he rejects the apartment because he says it's gross, it's disgusting, and I don't disagree with him. I think it looks absolutely horrible, and I bet it smells terrible. I could fix it. I, I mean, good. <laughs> but I think it feels you, like... You're wondering why I'm single? Yeah, <laughs> I could fix it. <laughs> I feel like that apartment is a space of childishness, but like a really fucked up, thwarted childishness. And Leo, even though he's not very bright in many ways, said the minute he steps and he goes, there's just no place where we can begin a future. Even if it's going to be a terrible, boring, I'm going to cheat on you, you're going to cheat on me, bourgeois future. This is not This is not a thing. This is a holding space. Well, and I think you feel that before he even says that. She's like, yeah, and there's a second bedroom. It's more like a half bedroom. You could put a baby like in yes. there. And you're yes. just like, as at least for me, you're just, I'm, I'm going, don't put a baby in that apartment. That baby is going to get Giardia. But I want to ask both of you, for both of you, would this movie have worked if it wasn't Brando and if it wasn't Leo? If you didn't have the legacy of Truffaut's films with him being the protagonist and if you didn't have the ever-present reminder, Brando used to be hot. Brando used to be hot in many ways, right? Like physically, but also in terms of his career. But for me, Leo, yeah, the casting doesn't really matter. I mean, that could have been any young man with a camera. It would have done almost as much. You still have the Atalante. You still have the other cinematic references. 
uh, for Brando, I think you'd have to have somebody as iconic as him. But you would have to have someone iconic. Yeah, it couldn't yeah. be an unknown who was just very good. It, okay, it yeah. can't be an unknown because the power dynamics are so important. They're, they are the core of this film, mm-hmm. which is that you cannot escape them. And they both get to a point where she's trying to put him into the system of power dynamics. Mm-hmm. He's trying to escape from it. And then they reverse places. But there's a point at which they meet in the middle. And I think mm-hmm. it is that bathtub scene and that, you know, the pig's ass and all of that yeah. scene where they're they're just there and they're just like, this is just, you know, this is just the body and we're here and okay and then there's the actual star backgrounds which is that he is a star he's come from the fucking godfather i was saying earlier to to me too there's something about coming at this film only having seen say earlier brando like on the waterfront Mm -hmm. and to see him come to go from classic cinema to this absolute vulnerable place that no say serious actor would have done to this point but to see brando coming that for me is erotic and it's it's you have to erase what precedes it while taking into account like all of the star stuff everything you know about him before it and then in the place where we are now forgetting everything that came after it the horrible island of dr moreau you know and these these just awful later projects that he did right so it's this very particular moment watching this man teetering on the brink Mm -hmm. yet experiencing pleasure there is something in that for me that's erotic and we'll uh be looping in my therapist now to discuss this in greater detail And now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. This week, of course, we're going to marry, fuck, and kill characters from Last Tango in Paris. Not that any of them need it. Mm, (laughs) (laughs) This is a good point. (laughs) Yeah, they're getting there on their own. (laughs) But let's talk about the decisions we would have made. Chris, take it away. Okay, so I think, like... That, that was pretty heavy in parts there, so I think it's worth kind of like shaking ourselves off a little bit. It's the first time I've used my degree in cinema since I got it, so I'm, I'm very happy about that. So honestly, 8 out of 10 experience. <laughs> and, and, and Rachel, you're right. I think that the characters in this movie basically had enough of all three of these. I mean, maybe not marriage. I mean, probably marriage as well, actually. Yeah. So I just yeah, we don't get a great marriage in this film. I decided to deviate a little bit from. We just... love a deviation. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to go marry, fuck, kill. Your options are a complete stranger. <gasps> oh. This movie. <laughs> okay. And the tango. <laughs> oh shit! Wow! 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 Oh man. You're, you're, you're hitting all of Nath's sweet spots right here. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> Give me three abstract objects, too. <laughs> abstract I, nouns. I am a gog. <laughs> I, wow. Can we this pick which stranger? Or the tango? Um, yes, you, I, I, just, I thought about this. Yes, you can. <laughs> you, you know, they have to be a complete, a complete stranger, so they can't be like a random celebrity. But it could just be someone who you see on the street like anybody you've got i'll give you an hour 
<laughs> Not right now. <laughs> okay. Some of us have a hard time with decisions and we'll definitely be picking the person they meet in 59 minutes and 59 yeah. seconds. <laughs> Lucky person. <laughs> okay. I am going to marry the tango because it's predictable but sexy. Mm. I enjoy <laughs> dancing. Ooh, yeah. And predictable but sexy. I mean, who wouldn't want to be predictable? Predictable but sexy, that's the ideal. That's a perfect spouse. (laughs) I will fuck this movie because it's true that I will spend time with it. So you're going to kill a complete stranger. Wow. When you put it like that. (laughs) It's a pretty different hour now. One of those experiments where you press a button and somebody across the world dies, but you get a million dollars and they're testing to see if you're a psychopath. I assume that with the stranger, like I can choose to, like who I fuck within the hour, I could also choose who to kill in the hour. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, within an hour on some random street in Paris, there's for sure going to be some guy like hassling some woman. There's going to be some asshole yelling at a taxi driver. I'll kill them. Wow. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> There's a, Could have got it, rid of the last tango in Paris from the world, but uh, instead, sorry, whoever you are. Well, the thing is that if I could have made it, genuinely, if I could have made the experience never have happened from Maria Schneider, that's what I would do. But in, in terms of just like erasing it from the world now, after having been, it existed. This was right. something that was created. And so we're not going to pretend like it didn't happen. You deal with what's there. Don't murder last tango. I, well, so I will say this is a great trio. Thank you very much. Because I've really gone back and forth. I'm going to try to think aloud here. With Last Tango in Paris, I keep coming back to the Paris part. I love Paris very much. At least for me, I will not speak for my co-hosts and friends. Living in Paris is not just because we do this podcast and we are now are contractually not allowed to leave. I do really love living here. It's free healthcare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really love it. And in, even though the vision of Paris in the movie is sordid and gross, that is kind of Paris. Like, Paris is gross. I would fuck the stranger because I think that would be really fun. And it would give me an hour. Like, you know that mo- those, we all know those moments of like. Take up an hour. <laughs> yeah. But I was just thinking like, you know those moments where you, you're out, you're drinking and you meet someone who's just fun and funny and you, you click. It's wonderful. Yeah, but enough. If I was like, okay, go out right now from this place. Go find a stranger. You have one hour. I mean, Could yeah. you find that? No. It's no, like, no, I would wait. find that maybe once it's a month if I tried that. all the time. To be, to be fair, my problem with this scenario is that I would kill all of these things. <laughs> So I'm really trying to work with the rules of this game. In my heart of hearts, and you know me both, like, I would kill everybody. <laughs> I'd kill the stranger. I'd kill that fucking weird tango situation. I'd, I'd kill this movie. But <laughs> I'm team player. <laughs> so within the parameters of this artificial game. The tango that you have to marry is not the tango that you see there with, like, all the weird corpse makeup. And the, oh, like, we don't. Well, I figured it was just the tango in general. Like it could be the Evita Che tango from Evita. <laughs> I like this though as a way of doing the psychopath test. Is that uh, you play marry, fuck, kill, and the answer is kill, kill, kill. <laughs> ah, right, okay. Box ticked. In thirty seconds, it's just Nav talking to the microphone. <laughs> That's it for this week in Paris. <laughs> See you next.
next week when it's just me. <laughs> if it's any tango ever, so I'm so I'm thinking beautiful, orderly, manicured. We know the steps. Yeah. Okay, so then I would marry tango. Obviously. I would. Uh, which one would I fuck? I think I might fuck last last tango and then kill the stranger. Well, obviously, I asked the question, so I've thought about it, but then I'm reconsidering, given your answers. Mm -hmm. This being said, you know what? I'm going to kill the tango. (gasps) Oh, just to be contrarian. I knew it. It's not to be contrarian, because the reality is, I know that the tango gives a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, but I'm probably never going to do the tango. I think it might be a bit overrated. There are lots of dancers out there. It's a good metaphor. It takes two to do it etc. But frankly, I could live in a world without tangos. <laughs> but you can't live in a world without fucking strangers. Right. Chris coming up strong against a tango. <laughs> Did not anticipate that tonight. <laughs> wow. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck the stranger in honor of this movie and the original kind of like brainchild of the movie, which is such a uh, it comes from an older school, I think, of auteurs in which the whole idea behind the movie, right. this is a, a late time to say this in the podcast, was Bertolucci. We know what auteurs are, guys. <laughs> Bertolucci, I don't know what he sounds like. I'm going to do a generic Italian accent. <laughs> Wouldn't it be sexy if I just, uh, if I met a complete stranger on the street, then we just add sex. That would be just the sexiest thing. I should make a whole movie about that. Pizza! <laughs> That was a southern Italian accent there. No. Um. No. No. <laughs> or Mario. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to play video games as a child. I was only allowed to study film theory. <laughs> Bertolucci and Mario, there's a big crossover. I wouldn't know. <laughs> so I think, you know, fucking the stranger, yeah. there is a, it, it, there's a sort of... You really think you could find a stranger within an hour? See, to me, the hour limit is that I'm like, if you give me a day, I think I could do it. And if you give me a lifetime, (laughs) I could charm the pants. If you give me a lifetime, I've already done it a handful of times. It's not that you go out and you have to find a stranger. They're already out there kind of like whoever you point at magically, desperately wants to have sex with you or marry you or die, I guess. Wow, yeah. Um, But an, an hour isn't that long at 11 o'clock on a Friday night on like a fancy Paris street that's absolutely hey, it, It's going to make my walk home more interesting as I wander around. Yeah, or scarier, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend just pointing at people. Hi. <laughs> Bonjour. I <laughs> play this game. <laughs> want to marry me? Want to fuck me or want me to kill you? What do you want? <laughs> Don't say anything. Nothing. <laughs> Don't speak. <laughs> Don't start. Comp- Wait, how does that song go? Where are you going? <laughs> and yeah, and so maybe controversially, I would marry this movie because, truth be told, I you know watching it, I was like, God, this is such a boring movie. What I was like, I was as I, so I was watching it, I was going, Oh, this is so boring. But as it went on, I was thinking, Wow, this is making me think. Uh, it's a long story, but I've been um, listening to a 
a book in the last few days which is really exploring kind of ideas of sexual relationships between people. I forget who it's by. I should, you know. Penthouse. It's called Penthouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's less of a book and more of a pornographic brochure. <laughs> It's a book called Bad Sex. I can't I can't remember the author right now. And it's really interesting because it's, a lot of it is about people struggling with polyamory and these ideas about what we what we want to believe about sex and relationships and what we can't do and it's really confronting that at this stage in quite an intellectual way and in my mind, it's coming up just against sort of like, you know, block after block. And it's it, it's trying to think its way out of the situation. And Last Tango in Paris is not exactly the same, but it is. I mean, it's not dealing with the same issues exactly. But for a sort of like a visceral answer to just the complexities of what human beings are mm-hmm. and our needs and desires and the sort of the bad parts of us and the good parts of us. By the end of the movie, I was like, yeah, this is really speaking to so many things about like what it means to be just a human being. And even if it is pretentious in parts, and I accept that there is, you know, a huge controversy around it, that ultimately it's it's it says a lot about like the human condition. And yeah, and so for that. And also for the complexity and to keep kind of putting, you know, turning it over in my mind, it's something that I'm happy to be with for a long time. I am so excited to make you watch... Deep Throat? The the Night Porter. (laughs) When you're just like, why am I bored by sex with Nazis? (laughs) For those moments. (laughs) You know when? (laughs) It's a Thursday afternoon. (laughs) that was this week's episode of we'll always have paris join us next week when we'll be discussing amelie cinema's original manic pixie dream girl thanks for joining us and see you next time